This is Coda Radio, episode 385 for October 26th, 2020. Hello, friends, and welcome into Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly talk show, taking a pragmatic look at the art and business of software development and the world of technology. This episode is brought to you by Cloud Guru. So many career possibilities in the cloud, and so little time. ACG's learning paths help you take the right course to prepare for architect, developer, security, and many other high-paying cloud jobs. Get hired, get certified, get learning at cloudguru.com. My name is Chris, and joining us stationed in his podcasting bunker in the heart of Florida, it is our host, Mr. Dominic. Hello, Mike. Hello, Chris. How are you today? I'm all right. How are you doing? I am. Uh, well, I, I, I was OK. Yeah. Then NASA made an announcement. They found water on the moon. I'm not saying it's aliens, but, you know, if you were an alien, where would you stash your ice on the moon? Right. Because otherwise those dirty humans are going to get to it. But hey, hey, Chris, moon teenies. <laughs> exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Now we know we're going to go work on the moon one day. It's just a matter of when work from home, psh, work from the moon. <laughs> is it working if the aliens have us in prison camps? I'm just saying, right? Actually, you know, I think the low gravity situation might be better on my RSI. So, you know, right off. <laughs> True. How will, it, how will it affect mechanical keyboards? Like, will, will the cherry blue still be? Yeah. Yeah, where they have that same kind of clack. I'm not so sure they would. So j- just a little bit of a Martian bacon real quick. Mm, sure. I mean, you know, I always prepare the bacon here for you. I've got it all ready to go. Folks who don't listen to Unfilter should go listen to Unfilter. But he's not even this conspiratorial. So within the last year, let's see, we've had several announcements from NASA regarding Mars, now the moon, and we very quickly ramped up something called Space Force. Sure. Let me tell you Mike's crazy thing. Here's what happened. Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump were in a hotel room. Right. They thought they were meeting someone to, quote, interview them. Sure. And it turned out that person ripped off their meat suit and was an alien. Yeah. What are you going to do when that happens? They promptly crapped their pants. And that's what I would do. And Trump formed Space Force, which he did correctly, because this is going to be the craziest episode of Quarter Radio. I am a firm believer that there will be alien contact within my life. Oh, that would be so amazing. It's got to be. Why, why are all of a sudden all this stuff is coming out? I like your crap the pants theory, but I feel like you could work in Elon somehow, you know, with SpaceX and, okay, well, and Starlink. And, so so how, how do we know Elon is himself not an alien? Right. Of course. You know what? He seems he has this technology. Nobody else does. I'm just saying. Mm-hmm. He's talking about tunnels all the time. You know, aliens love to live underground. I mean, if you haven't played Resistance on the PS3, it's basically what I believe. So Right. So uh, this doesn't have anything to do with your new coffee club subscription, does it? Uh, no, but uh, maybe wrong choice <laughs> starting a coffee club now when going to be on the verge for perpetual panic attack. Yeah. Right. <laughs> well, you want to be caffeinated when the aliens arrive. You do want to put up some form of fight, right? Like, you know, I was just kind of thinking myself, I've got a pretty high rate of caffeine intake still these days, and mostly it comes in chilled forms. And that just sucks in the winter. You know, just it's below freezing outside and I'm walking out the door with a sugar-free Red Bull or, God forbid, sparkling water with a caffeine pill. I mean, I'm, I'm an animal these days, and I got to get my act together. I really got to, I got to, if I'm going to caffeinate, I need to caffeinate like a gentleman. You could still drink Red Bull? I do the sugar-free Red Bull, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I drink Red Bull. I'm shaking like a crack fiend. Like, it's, yeah. I'd have to have, like, four of those suckers. <laughs> wow, man, you're, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the caffeine pills are, like, 200 milligrams. When I, when I pop up a caffeine pill, you know, uh, I developed an intense caffeine uh, tolerance when I had sleep apnea. And I've actually backed off for the last year since I got a CPAP. Uh, but, you know, for 10 years, I developed a uh, medicate through caffeine approach to the first half of my day. <laughs> you know, stop that kind of habit, cold turkey. You know? No, the withdrawals <laughs> would be intense, I'm sure. Yeah. So now I'm just trying to find ways that are like a little more healthy to get that caffeine fix. And so I've tapered way back on the Red Bull. What I what I actually have done for the most part is a regime that I take in the morning with a soda stream and some bubbly water and a caffeine pill and a B12 supplement and a little mushrooms in there, too, to help me get the brain cognitives going. And um, that's kind of my go out the door solution. But in the in the in the winter, 
a cold glass of bubbly water in the morning is is not as refreshing as it is in the summer. <laughs> so when you said a coffee club, I was like, well, son of a bitch, that's actually kind of a good idea. I don't know. I'm tempted. Have you got your first bag yet or is it too early? Uh, it's too early, although they said they shipped it. So in theory, I could have it before next week. But it's a weird Theo deal. They do single origin coffee from different regions. You get to pick the roast and all of that before they ship it to you, which I think is kind of cool. Yeah. And, and you, yeah. So I did. Uh, I mean, I so I'm in love with my AeroPress because it does make the best cup of coffee. You know, like any other addict, I quit coffee briefly. And then when I went back, I you went hard, went super hard. Yeah, right. I have burned myself several times. <laughs> yeah. So I think I actually damaged my countertop a little bit in the RV. I have stained. Yeah. Because, you know, they're not built. Yeah. Super, yeah, yeah. They're not built super well. So I'm sitting there wrenching on the on the AeroPress. For those of you who don't know, you press down on it. <laughs> and that pressing down motion every morning on your countertop <laughs> does damage after a while. So I gave it up. I'm frequently tempted to just go back to the traditional French press and, you know, not burn myself. But there's got to be some listeners out there that have a pretty solid caffeine regime that doesn't leave them feeling strung out at the end of the day. So you got to go to coder.show slash contact. Peanut42 in the chat room says he suggests mate tea or mix the caffeines. You start with coffee, then you transition to green tea, and then you finish off with mate. See, he does. He has a bit of a regime there. <laughs> That's basically what I do. I literally wean myself in the morning. It's a couple cups of coffee. Then it's uh, black tea, then green tea. And at, by the end of the day, I'm down to like uh, dandelion tea, because I'm a hippie and I believe that. Right. Because yeah. if you if you blow it, you mess your sleep up. Right. Well, that's the thing. And right. You, you can't Captain Picard it and have two year old gray hot at like 1030 at night. No, it is. If there is anything fake about Star Trek, anything, it's that that Captain Picard's drinking tea. And- yes, that, that is the one thing that makes no sense. It's the one thing. Otherwise, everything's totally explainable. Well, we got a whole bunch of feedback, a few more on the Dark Matter developer subject. And we had a reflective Dark Matter dev. All of these guys. Totally, totally understandable. And we are happy to accommodate, have asked to just remain anonymous for, I think, pretty understandable reasons. So we are leaving everyone anonymous who is a dark matter developer that writes in. But they write in response to the dark matter developer. I worked at a large retailer in the U.S. on a specific applications team. There's about 150 people on this development team. I was uh, the lead DevOps engineer for the team managing 2000 plus VM deployments of SUSE 10. <laughs> yes. And eventually Sless 11. Yes. <laughs> Although then he quit. Uh, <laughs> oh. We were doing so well. It's true. Uh, the company had a strong push to use Java and Angular. They had an architecture review board. See, if this is what I thought was fascinating, Mike, is getting some insights into how this actually works in these large companies. They had an architecture review board that would approve languages and deployment platforms that could be used within the company. Half the company was stuck in the legacy IBM WebSphere world, while the other half was migrating to an on-premises pivotal Cloud Foundry deployment. The platform team even went to the extent of writing internal Spring Boot initializer sites that would set up everything from the Maven module all the way to the repo provisioning, security accounts, load balancers, etc., He goes on to say, they limit a lot more than the programming languages, but it does make shopping for Java devs easy. So from a hiring standpoint, it works really well for them. The role I was in somehow allowed for me to bring in some new software, Prometheus, Ansible, Docker, Node.js, and some Go. But mainstream adoption inside the company was extremely hard and ruffled a lot of feathers. But since COVID, the team is looking to move to a full hybrid model, allowing employees to work remotely permanently. In short, the company was clear trying to make its strides to be more cloud native, but they ended up having a long road in politics that finally beat me down. And that's why he left because they were trying to get to cloud native. They were trying to get there, but there was just this cult of the old way of doing things. And, you know, you got architecture review boards and platform teams that said all these things. And you may have some crazy new idea, but they're just not having it. And he found it extremely frustrating which is totally understandable. But thanks for the reflections on that. I thought that was interesting. And yet another email where the full-time working at the desk staff are transitioning to this hybrid work-from-home work at the office again. Like, that is a trend we keep seeing in these emails. You know, you know, you know my bet. I think there's no going back to the way things were. Uh, yeah. We're not, we're not going back to 19, right? 20, 
21, 22, so forth. Couldn't smart employers spin this as a benefit too? It's a perk, you know, it's great for you. It's good for the environment because it it means less people are commuting. So now your company is more green because they're reducing carbon emissions of their employee and it saves them on cleaning. It saves them on office space. It saves them on cooling costs. It saves them on snack costs. It it saves them on parking. I mean, just all these areas. And and salary, right? Uh, We didn't cover it on this show, but there was a, a story. A bunch of the tech companies who are allowing remote work are... I don't know what the right word. Reducing, nerfing, prorating. I don't know which would be the right word. Your salary, if you happen to like live in a, I don't know, if you live in Florida, they're going to pay you a lower wage than they would pay someone in New York or San Francisco. So that's interesting <laughs> for the remote team. That's There's that, right? So they can work that angle. I've also worked with companies where being remote meant we might be based out of Texas or we might we might be based out of Utah but we can hire worldwide, it opened their options up to a much wider range of developers and skill sets. And it also meant they could poach people that, say, had moved to California to work for Google or work for Amazon here in in Washington. They could poach those people and just have them stay there. They didn't have to relocate. And that was a huge perk for them. Yeah. And, And in a way, I think they ended up, I think they had to pay according to the location they live at. So if, if they say lived in Montana, they'd probably pay them one rate. And if they lived, say, in San Francisco, they'd, they'd pay a different rate. So they did scale it based on their location, from my recollection. But it gave them just a much larger pool than just the locals, the local folks, for better or for worse. Yeah. I mean, especially for technical work, I kind of don't see a reason not to. I really, I really do think like the hybrid model of having some sort of HQ where people can get together if needed, or for more like salesy reasons, right? But why would you need to like house 30 developers in an expensive office and then like have to feed them candy and Red Bull, you know, moon, moon teenies? <laughs> I remember when I first joined and I'm 100 percent serious about this, just to just to give you an idea of the scale. Right. When I joined Linux Academy, I worked a lot for like four months out of their uh, main office. And I think their food and snack budget, because they had this always like refilling the fridge policy and lunches were brought in on Friday. I'm pretty sure they had more money just invested in doing that than Jupiter Broadcasting made every year. You know, just that line, that line item expense for them, the snacks and the free lunch week uh, Fridays, I think probably cost them more in total than all the revenue Jupiter Broadcasting would earn in a year. I mean, it was really it's we joke about it. Right. But when you think about how you actually execute that, there is uh, someone in charge of the office uh, and she was running to Costco on company time expensing her gas, yep. using a company credit card to buy food. And then she was driving it back. She was stocking and doing that every single day, uh, at, you know, hundreds of dollars each time, every single day. And it is really expensive. And to be able to cut that back matters. The, the issue is really here in the States is broadband. And Benny Ugh. writes in to really make us feel bad about it. He says, hey, guys, I've been listening from episode one. And just a couple of days ago, found out you're back. So I've been binging all of the episodes. That's going to do it, right? That's right. And now he's writing in. He says, uh, I wanted to comment on your data plan issues in the U.S. and brag about mine. Here in Israel, my plan, which is LTE, I get 500 gigs a month with no limitations. I can stream Pornhub all day long if that floats your boat. And I get free eSIM support for my Apple Watch. God damn it. I know. <laughs> for roughly the equivalent of 17 USD. Uh, other providers might give you like 150 gigs with no eSIM support for just $8. But hey, you guys got Trump, so it's all good. Keep being the masters of podcasting while slaying lizards, Benny. Thank you, Benny. I agree on the lizards part, at least. I don't I, I, I hate everything about that email. I mean, <laughs> why can't we have good broadband like monopolies, I guess? Uh, I know. I know. I know. Uh, it's it's um it's it's a bad situation because now we're getting 5G and there's still these caps and limits on 5G. I, I have to believe at some point things have to shift. When it when when it becomes more common that your home broadband connection is provided by wireless than it is wired, it's gonna, something's going to have to shift. It's going to be schooling, right? That's going to have to push it. Or, I mean, maybe your buddy uh, Space Alien Elon comes in with his uh, Starlink and there's a tribe here in Washington, not far from the studio, that uh, is demoing Starlink right now and had no connectivity before this. And now they have Starlink and they're getting uh, around 20 millisecond response times in like pinging to Google mm. and they're getting 80 megabits on some of their download speeds. That's not bad at all from Starlink. No, I mean, it's not Israel good, but you know, 
people take. So horrible, horrible story. I called Spectrum, otherwise known as Bright House, who is uh, Mad Botter's ISP. We actually have two. The other one's Frontier, who's in bankruptcy right now. Because Yes! (laughs) (laughs) So good. And I said, hey, I would like to upgrade our broadband. I was like, sure. All right. Yeah, we could definitely get that up for you. We can get 500 down. I'm like, yes, I like this. And wow, are you sure you want the top rate? Yes, I do. 35 up. I said, no, I want the top rate. Yep. Yeah, that, that is the top rate. Uh-huh. You you want to know something? Hmm. No joke. Right before this show, I got a call from my Comcast rep. Oh, God. My business package, which is uh, $200 a month, expires next month. It goes up $150. It's nice when you have a captive market, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It sure is. And so uh, they're offering me a new bundle, which will cost me $100 more. I'll get 600 down and 35 up. That's the best best I can get. 35 up. Same same thing. So if you're Mike and you're insane, what would your next phone call be? I mean, I don't know if there's many choices when you want steady, reliable broadband, especially if you're self-hosting stuff. I, I mean, I'm, I think I'm going to do... Oh, and here's the funny thing, man. They're making me take, uh, uh, I think, two phone lines or something, which I told them I'm not even going to use, but to get the bundle discount. Like actual phone lines? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And they have to install them. Oh God! So they have to show the install. So in order to in order to get around that system, what they're what the guy's going to do is he's going to discount me a month to cover the install fees, which they have to do with the phone lines that they have to bundle in order to get me the internet discount that I want. <laughs> so stupid! It's really something. That is the dumbest. I know. I mean, what I'm doing, which is not really feasible, I don't think, for a team. But I mean, maybe four or five people. I'm investing in Lady Jupes. I'm investing in an industrial grade LTE router. I act, I received it. I've just started setting it up. And, it, you know, I'll have an AT&T and a Verizon SIM, and I will pay out the nose for that. But it is, is industrial-grade grade reliable LTE as you're going to get. But in a, in, a, in a building, you know, in an office space where you're thinking about running a chat server and, and what else, you know, it seems like you got to have an actual wired broadband. There's just not a lot of other options. They got us, Mike. Or you, you, you host somewhere else, you know. Or you go insane. You call up the ISP, ask to speak to their fiber department. Oh, uh, they have one? They have one. Uh. <laughs> and then you order fiber. Oh, my goodness. That's going to be a cost. It, it, it is a cost. The uh, city permits willing, we are going to have fiber in our plant city facility space. Man, you could double as a, as a data center now. That's kind of the plan. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's going to be super reliable. And, of course, exclusively hosting on the premier Linux option. Right, right, of course. SUSE. Oh, God. God. Really? Yes, actually. It hurts every time. <laughs> Do you know how fast they could possibly get it? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a gigabit fiber. So it's, Woo. yeah. Woo. And they're running it directly into the space through like a wall. Potential hiccup, right? This requires permits. Ah. So hopefully, you know, we don't get NIMBY to hell, but... You know, we are going to hear look into our other options, but I don't think there is any other options. I think it's only Comcast here, and I don't think they offer fiber. I think it's just business cable or regular cable. Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> well, I was kind of surprised, at like... Because, like, obviously, I didn't wake up and be like, I'm going to install a fiber line, right? <laughs> like, Yeah, right. But there was no other option. It's bad. It's, it's... So we talk about work from home, but this is... A, I mean, I guess you don't need incredible bandwidth but you need a reliable solid connection with low latency especially for all the video chats and then if you're actually getting into hosting services it's a whole nother level so i i I say good for you it's going to be a massive investment but it'll be reliable as heck do they lock you into a contract like they do with comcast three years baby (laughs) yep yeah yeah yeah, I think mine's a two year with Comcast. I'm I'm seriously thinking that if they force me to get a phone line, I might just see if I can build like a Raspberry Pi voicemail machine and then just give out the number and say, call the phone number Comcast made me get <laughs> and leave a voicemail. That's actually not a bad idea for <laughs> the know. shows. You could do like the unfiltered tip line brought to you by Comcast. Yeah, they'll love that. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe that'll get them to stop bundling this stuff is if you just publicly shame them. <laughs> uh, it's Comcast. I yeah, no, no, they, I don't think yeah, their brand is publicly shamed and this they continue on. All right, well, uh, we have some follow up from Dinesh who had wrote in about going indie um, a couple episodes ago. He says, "Hey, uh, Michael and Chris, greetings. A couple of weeks ago, I asked about 
you, uh, you gentlemen, to share your wisdom on whether it would be a good idea to go as an independent developer. Thanks a lot for your comments and guidance on the topic. I really reconsidered what I was thinking and made me think of new angles and realized I was turning a blind eye to a couple of items and taking them for granted, so I think it was a rookie mistake. I've decided to push back my challenge to go indie until a later date. I'm not completely scrapping the idea. I think I'm going to work on improving my existing network and build up a small fund as a safety net and then reassess my situation next year. Interestingly, I had someone approach me, though, for a side gig just a few weeks ago. I turned it down due to work commitments, but that would have been a great first bug, as Mike put it. So we, we talked him out of it, which I feel a little bad about, but at the same time, I think he's got a really solid plan about building a little bit of a nest egg, building out contact network, and taking like a 12-year view with setting a, an end goal of by you know 12 months, I'm going to try to have a, these things in place. That's the way to go if you can. If you have that luxury, that seems oh, like the ideal way to go. I like it. Yeah. He, write, he also had some uh, thoughts on your Vim experience. He says, I used to be a Vim user. And I spent countless days configuring my VimRC way more than I'd like to admit. I said I could feel the pain in Michael's voice when he was explaining the trauma he had been through setting up Vim. As a fellow Vim user, I understand your pain, and I'd like you to consider an alternative. I'd like to introduce you to NeoVim, or NVim. NVim is still Vim under the hood to some extent, but I like to consider it as a separate text editor. I've set it up with all the useful functionalities like VS Code completions, syntax checking with alerts, automatic markdown preview, automatic JSON formatting, and more. And what I really love about NVim, or NuVim, or NeoVim, <laughs> is how well it integrates with Conquer, uh, a Conquer of Completion, COC, which uh, provides an IDE-like experience for me. Feel free to go through my NVim config file. He'll link it for you. So check out NeoVim at NeoVim.io and Conquer of Completion, COC, on GitHub. I mean, you know, I'm so happy with VS Code. I, I, on the command line, I can understand it. But in the uh, on the desktop, well, I'll save my thoughts for later. I think we're going to talk about VS Code. Yes, I, I did not, unfortunately, get an opportunity to try NeoVim yet, but I will definitely check it out. I'm sort of, yeah, we're going to talk about VS Code in a little bit. So Yeah, we got one last email. This is from Alex, and I wanted to hold it to the end because he's a longtime listener, and he wants to challenge our definition of dark matter developer, which I think would be good because we're still on this. So if you are out there as a dark matter developer and would like to share your insights on what it's come like, come into the light. Yeah, let us know. You can come into light, but we'll keep you anonymous. We won't. Yep. We won't say where you work or uh, what your name is. It's all private. And if you use Suze, you have to mention it. Really, we're just kind of conducting a bit of a of a survey, in a sense, to kind of get an idea of what it's like to work out there in a nine to five job. And have a better understanding of it. So if you want to participate, that coder show slash contact. And Alex writes in. He says, "I've been listening." to the recent episodes was all the talk about dark matter developers. And I think something has changed since I started hearing the term some years ago. My understanding is a dark matter developer is someone who doesn't follow the blogs, podcasts, new technologies, and trends, or keep up with online communities. Instead, they just show up and do their job, not trying to push the envelope or learn new things. On the show, however, I think people think anyone locked into a legacy technology is now a dark matter developer. I think it's completely possible to be locked into, say, using Java 8 or COBOL for certain projects and still keep your skills sharp and keep up with the broader industry. Longtime listener here since last 2010, I think. Thanks for all the work and wonderful network. Well, thank you, Alex. I think what it is, Mike, and then I'll let you jump in on this, is I think when we started the show, that would be how you might define the dark matter developer, more of your COBOL and, and old school developers who who grew up really before there were online communities and got into the industry and started working and became professionals before there was um, podcasts or YouTube. And so they don't really use those as primary sources of information. I think that when we started the show over a decade ago, that was, right? Has it been a decade? I don't know, eight, nine years ago. I think that was uh, what defined a dark matter developer. But I think now there's not many developers that I've met who aren't keeping up to date in some way. I think it now just if you're into this area of technology, especially if you're developing for web technologies or mobile technologies, you kind of automatically have to stay up to date with what's going on. You have to keep your operating system up to date to continue to target those platforms. You have to keep your browsers up to date to target the new browsers. Like it's one hand, it's it's just it's like hand in glove. It has you have no choice now. And so I think we've sort of in a sense, updated the term to just mean people who are working heads down at essentially a nine-to-five job, who don't get any recognition, who maybe don't get to work on the fancy, shiniest new technologies or or toolkits, 
but they're cranking out reliable software that an enterprise or a business or, you know, a point of sale machine or something that just gets the job done, doesn't get a lot of credit, doesn't get a lot of notoriety, but it's what actually makes the world tick. That's what I kind of see a dark matter developer as these days. Yeah, it's interesting. So this email really made me think because I think you're right that there's been, and, and so we see that there's been like creep in the definition. Because I'm trying to think of any developer that I could realistically conjure in my mind that isn't somehow like on using Stack Overflow or like involved in the wider community, maybe not contributing and probably not contributing, right? But, you know, it's like, like you said, web development, JavaScript is just such a warp speed cluster that how can you not follow the blogs and actually be able to do it? So you accept my modern definition of the dark matter developer? It's, is that I a- think I do. It's, it's definitely different than the original definition, but I, I think you're right that that original definition is simply just not possible anymore. Right. Yeah. I mean, I suppose somebody could still be in a data center writing for a mainframe, a system 390 somewhere that, <laughs> that never that never has to get up to date. But I, I don't even think that's a possible scenario anymore. I don't I don't even think so. Uh, there's probably a couple of guys in a bunker in Kansas with some nukes that they're writing Fortran and God hope they have no bugs. We'll never know. We'll never know because they're not listening. So they're <laughs> Get it right in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if you are listening and you want to let us know, coder.show slash contact. Thanks to Linode for supporting the Coder Radio program. And remember, visit linode.com slash coder and receive a $100 60-day credit towards your new account. Linode started in 2003 as one of the first companies in cloud computing, three years before AWS and the other cloud providers. So they really know what they're doing. And the fantastic thing that gives me confidence to use them for my small business is they're independently owned. And they're just founded on a passion of Linux and an understanding, a core understanding of how the technology works. And if you've worked in a company before that ships a technology product, you know how important it is that the people in that company understand what it is they're shipping and making. That's Linode. And that's why it matters to me that they're independently owned. That's why it matters to me they've been around since 2003. And that's why I deploy my infrastructure for the last two years now. For two years, I've been deploying my infrastructure on Linode. As a Linux user and a participant in that community, though, I really appreciate Linode's support of open source initiatives like Kubuntu, like Linux Fest Northwest. But as a businessman who's doing fancy business, deploying websites and whatnot, and playing clips and whatnot, I really appreciate the other aspects of Linode too. Beyond just hosting servers at 35 to 50% less than the rest of the industry would cost, they also offer features like S3-compatible object storage, which is an easy way for you to store and access data without the need for running a front-end server. It's perfect for data that doesn't regularly change, like images or other multimedia files. I use it for clips all the time. I use it for off-site backups of databases constantly. And there's an API to manage all of this as well. And it plugs right in with Kubernetes and Terraform if that's what you're using to deploy infrastructure as code, which is probably worth considering. And if you want to learn, say, like a subject like cybersecurity, well, you're going to need to be familiar with all the Linux-based operating systems. And Linode has just about any distribution you'd want to run. Even OpenSUSE (laughs) is on there. I mean, I don't know why, but they even have a couple versions of OpenSUSE. I won't hold it against them. It's a commitment to quality. They've also got the Ubuntu's and the Debian's and the Fedora's and the Arches, even Alpine. So really what Linode does is they provide virtual servers that make it easy and affordable for you to host anything in the cloud. I set up a Minecraft server for my kids and I run the Jupyter Broadcasting Matrix server and encoding servers and show notes servers. All of that is on Linode. Also, my jump host, my VPN servers, I run it all on there. You can start at $5 a month or you can go up to rigs that have multiple CPUs and GPUs and really pretty powerful. They're dedicated to offering the best virtualized cloud computing. If it runs on Linux, it runs on Linode. And you can get a $100 60-day credit when you go to linode.com slash coder. That supports the show, lets them know you heard about it here, and gives you a $100 60-day credit towards a new account. That's linode.com slash coder. And a big thank you to Linode for sponsoring the Coder Radio program. linode.com slash coder. Let's move into the hoopla, sir, and uh, let's talk about the trouble with GNOMES, because you and I have recently upgraded to the latest and greatest and freshest GNOME 3.38, which comes with a lot of nice new features. Always a mistake. (laughs) But it does sometimes come with some downsides. And sometimes they can be trivial little things that really wreck the GNOME shell experience. And 
I I keep hoping one day to have the ultimate workstation OS powered by GNOME running on top of a very powerful operating system like Linux, and it's so close, Mike. How's your initial experience gone? I saw in Slack you ran into some issues, so let's talk about it. Okay. This is going to be a bit of a therapy session, I think, for us. When designing something called extensions, yeah, it's super important that an extension not be able to cripple your whole system. Ah, uh, yes. You might say a fundamental. But that's just not the case in GNOME, right? <laughs> like, so I use a very popular extension called Backslide. Um, I am willing to bet many people listening also use it. Uh, if you don't know what it is, weirdly enough, in GNOME, you cannot have like rotating wallpapers by default, which I think is insane, but I can't seem to convince anybody to like modify Pop! OS to just do that. Mike, they, they just added support for being able to even set what folder your pictures reside in yeah, just see, recently okay <laughs> so this is like a um mccaff what is it mcdonald's parfait of problems here yeah that's like a basic feature right when windows 7 is dunking on you you have to just rethink things but you know it's one of those many things that existed at one point and then they took it out to uh reimagine redevelop it and it just took a while to land so like a decade ago, when I ran GNOME 2, my first adventure with Linux in college, you could, in fact, <laughs> right, have rotating wallpapers, just like on every other desktop operating system. And it's worth noting, if you're looking at Linux desktops here, Plasma handles this like a champ. It's got a dozen different options with sub options to choose from. And I think Elementary does it, too. I, I forgot the name of their environment. Pantheon. Is that right? Yeah. Pantheon. Yep. All right. So so like it's not that this is like an a not solved problem in other places, but okay. And you got these nice screens now. You want to put some nice wallpapers up there to really kind of make your screen pop. I get it. You want to rotate them sometimes. You want to rotate them. All right. So whatever. You have to install an extension to do that. I think that's insane, but, you know, I, I, I understand that I can't have what I want because I, I'm a bad person and this is what I deserve. One wallpaper by default never changes. But extensions can literally bring down the desktop environment. Yes, and like, so I updated my lemur because one, I'm in Plant City all week. So I had to do it over the weekend if I wanted to do it. And I wanted some of the new features because I'm, I don't know, I just do, right? I'm computer enthusiast. What do you want? Well, and also it, GNOME is in this development phase of hyper development right now where each each release of GNOME Shell brings usability and performance improvements. Yeah. And there's like pop because I run pop. So like I wanted them to see how like the new stacking feature that I didn't know about you know, works with the new GNOME feature. So like there are reasons I want the things I want that maybe other people don't care about. Right. Yeah. But I, so the, up, you know, it does the disk upgrade thing. It's fine. Whatever. It takes a little while longer than I thought it should, but it's fine. Boot back into pop, do the decrypt thing, log in all my function keys that have anything to do with screen brightness um, or audio all of a sudden don't work. Oh, and I'm just like, Oh my God, it, it is pop. I, I thought it really thought it was pop. Right? I'm like, son of a bitch. It's, it's yeah. broken. Like, of course. You just did an OS upgrade. Yeah. Right. Then I remembered literally like two years ago, we had basically the same conversation. Maybe it was only a year ago about I had done a GNOME update and it broke all my stuff. And I like rage quit and went back to Mac. It's one of the many times I've done that. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like, hang on. Let me disable my Pomodoro timer, which it turned out wasn't the culprit. And backslide. And son of a bear, it was backslide. And then I got sass on Twitter. Like, well, you know, the extension yeah. isn't updated to the new gnome. Like, that I is know. not my fault. <laughs> like, I know. The, 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 the extension shaming that happens, that uh, when, whenever you have a bad experience with either Firefox extensions or GNOME shell extensions, you get extension shamed. And you get everything from you use the wrong one, you're holding it wrong, uh, you shouldn't use extensions at all. Or, hey, don't you know you have to update that manually? All these, all these like, uh, well, yeah, maybe gotcha kind of things when really you just want a workstation that has some basic functionality and you're forced to use extensions to get it there. And then you're shamed for it. I, it drives me crazy. Well, and like, okay, another completely reasonable way you could handle this if you were sane and cared about user experience. When you update GNOME, and you reboot into the new version, it could be like, hey, dog, you're running this extension that's not compatible. I disabled it for you. Sorry, buddy. Go figure that out on your own, which like is still a bad experience. But yeah, it's better than me spending 45 minutes in a freaking rage. 
I think there used to be code checking in GNOME Shell that would automatically disable extensions, but then sort of aspirationally they thought, well, we're getting to the point where we're not making as many breaking changes, so we're going to stop forcibly disabling them. That is bullshit. It breaks every time. (laughs) Well, uh, I had the experience. This has been a while now, and I've been very cautious. I have a very minimal GNOME Shell extensions approach now. I still have probably four enabled, which is... Maybe five even. I'm not sure. Um, I I have learned the hard way that the most innocent thing can really mess up your GNOME Shell experience. I had something that I do every time I'm on a Mac. I install iStat menus. And anytime since, and I'm not joking here, probably the late 90s that I've set up a Linux desktop, I've had something on my screen that displays my CPU, RAM, and network usage. I grew up in a time when I could... I could physically sense via sound or sight how my computer was performing. There would be lights that would actually flash on the front of the case that represented disk access. Mm. And you could hear the disk clicking as it accessed. And I could translate that to the load. And so when computers started to get silent and more and more uh, like cores and faster CPUs and faster disk and quieter disk, I, I very happily adopted things like GK Realm and other tools that would visualize my computer load. So I had an analogy for that. So when Gnome Shell came along, uh, and and in GNOME, and it was something I extensively used in Gnome Two, and I use I still continue to use it in Plasma. I added an extension to monitor my CPU, my memory, and my network. Oh, you know, you should know you can't have that. The extension is still available in the in the extensions website. It took me a while to realize it because it didn't happen right away. I don't know exactly the the order of events, but eventually Gnome Shell would sort of pause every now and then. Like if I would say hit the super key and start a search, it would pause and then go back and then pause and then go. And my mouse would pause with it. And what was happening is every time the extension called to have the CPU graph and the memory graph and the network graph call updated, because the single-threaded nature of Gnome Shell, the entire shell would pause while it addressed that update, while it drew that graph, and then it would resume. And every now and then, it would take literally a perceivable moment where I could see my entire workstation completely freeze for, say, half a second. And it took me forever to track it down to that. It took me forever. I thought, I thought for sure, at first, I had a hardware problem. This must be some sort of CPU issue or something. Like I, I was convinced it must be a hardware problem until I tried other desktops. Oh, it's just so infuriating. I know. So right now, funny enough, I'm talking to you on a Plasma system. The machine I'm live streaming on, Plasma. Uh, The machine I record on, XFCE. But I'll tell you what, still out of all of them, I think I prefer Gnome Gnome Shell, just the way my brain works. Yeah, like I know, and like people were like, dude, you can just install KDE. Like, I I get it, right? And it's good. It's solid. Right, but I lose all my pop stuff, don't I? Don't I lose, like, my... Yeah. Yeah, so I like my tiling windows and stuff. That's the thing, is, is, um, you know, so right now, I'm running Fedora 33. Ooh, how's that? I, you know, it's, it's, it's a more, it's, there's more hoops. Mm. But, like, if you're comfortable pulling down the pop repo for pop icons and pop theme... You can pull them down, and then they have, like, this ninja build system that just builds and installs the pop theme on Fedora 33. So I'm using pop icons and pop theme. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah. So that makes it feel a little more at home. And I feel like I got to tweak the terminal more than I do in pop. And it's a, it's, a, it's a simpler GNOME Shell experience, a more upstream GNOME Shell, so you have to add the extensions. But the clever thing that Fedora does is they put the extensions for GNOME Shell in the repo. So you can go into GNOME software and search for extensions, and then when they're updated, it will update them via your package updates. Are you from the future? I, isn't that obvious? That's such a great way to solve the problem, and Fedora thought of it, and so it's one of the things I love about Fedora. The other thing, honestly, that I like is you can really easily add FlatHub to uh, Fedora, and then you have all of the software on FlatHub is available in GNOME software, Slack, Telegram, and I personally think flat packs for desktop software launch faster. They start up faster, and they it it also works with the pop theme. Rel- relative to snaps or relative to yeah yeah like when I install a snap version of Slack, I feel like I have to wait a little bit longer for Slack to start in the morning and Telegram as well. Whereas I feel like flat pack they just fire right up. Have you noticed? And I don't know if this is just Telegram. So pop complains if you don't use the flat pack version of things. 
for reasons I don't understand. Hmm. Uh, so I deleted it and I installed the Flatpak version. It didn't adopt the theming for like the oh yeah window bar. Yeah, that in theory would be a problem uh, because I, I don't quite understand how Flatpak has access to the pop theme technically, unless there is a Flatpak layer for it. But I, I also like you may have noticed, which we could talk about here in a moment, is Edge. Right. Uh, Edge uses its own title bar. It doesn't use a native title bar. So that's still a bit of a problem on Linux in general. So before, before we dive into Edge, though, right, before we do that, it's like I have had and I'm pretty sure you have had conversations with people from Gnome. And my understanding is like they can't fix this. Yeah. Not without a massive retooling. So, right. I'm curious to know what your thoughts are on this. On September 16th, they announced the Gnome Extensions Rebooted Initiative. So at the sort of completion of GNOME 3.3.8, which you and I are just now getting, but has been done since September, uh, they launched an initiative that is what they say a, quote, collaborative effort to address the issues around GNOME shell extensions. We want to start addressing them by making a number of policy changes and technological improvements while building a sustainable community. Now, here's the problem. I don't see a lot in here that's going to make a difference. So this I, this is the part I, I want to get your take on. They say, number one, Proper documentations of how extensions work and reasonable expectations for an extension developer. Build a CI pipeline for extension writers to test their extensions prior to GNOME shell releases. Centralize extensions for break testing on GNOME GitLab space. And create a forum for extension developers and extension writers to work together on GNOME releases. I mean, that doesn't do anything. I mean, I'm not, I mean it's a good idea, right, to help the extension community. Right. But like, just using my specific case like yeah it's completely unreasonable for me to be like annoyed with the backslide developer right because i'm not you know he's made this cool thing for free and great but the problem is the fundamental design of the gnome system right what i didn't see on this list was an api <laughs> or like we will sandbox extensions so that if they crash or have an issue we just just a nuclear desktop environment Right. Yeah. Like even if extensions just have their own thread. Yeah. Separate process. Well, for, even if it just had to be one's process for all of the extensions, I could live with that. But because it's all integrated in one and, you know, they cite security issues that you don't have to fight if you don't break the uh, GNOME shell up. They cite um, memory efficiencies. I mean, they have some reasons and stuff. And there have been significant improvements on how it all operates over the last couple of years. The extension problem you're running into now used to happen every single release for all of the extensions. So it has actually gotten better. So maybe this sort of halfway measure, which I don't mean to talk it down because I'm like just super grateful for anything they can do to, to solve the problem. And I, I kind of appreciate the technical hard spot they're in. But this feels like a halfway measure to me. Uh, but even if it's this, I, I could see just making it possible for developers of t extensions to communicate more efficiently, to give them a spot to go to communicate and to create some documentation that says, this is what we as a community will expect. You know, you update within this amount of time. You participate in the release cycles. Maybe to put some rails on this process that's right now is a Wild West. I mean, you, you have to appreciate because there, there really are kind of Kobayashi Maru here, right? Because if they were to like magically go back and fix the actual technical problem they will probably break all the existing extensions anyway because it'd be too different right yep they'd have to right but but let's i mean i know everybody's gonna hate this because it's a performance hit but let a thing you could do i think right and i i you know don't know the under the hood of gnome couldn't you when the extensions are loading check them by version for compatibility with the version of gnome shell you're on there was some system in place because like then you could just like not load that extension and just throw up even like an ugly error alert to the to the user. One thing that it helps now, but it's not you have to know to go look for it is with GNOME three three eight or maybe there was the release before. I think it's actually the release prior. They launched an extensions app that is a GNOME shell dedicated app just to see what the to turn extensions on or off or to see if they have an error. You have to know that it exists and it's brand, it's relatively new, so it's not like many people do know. And you have to go there to get the information. It doesn't like give you a, as far as I know, it doesn't give you a notification using the built-in notification system saying, hey, extension XYZ is out of date. Now, there is an extension to check for updates for extensions. 
Uh, hang on, let me let me consult uh, Leonardo DiCaprio. Hey, dog, I heard you like extensions. <laughs> yeah, extension inception. I don't know. So they called the extensions rebooted initiative. They say their ultimate goal is to get the community to work with each other, uh, have closer ties with GNOME Shell developers, and provide document documentation and tools. And my ultimate takeaway is. I think what we're seeing is a change in attitude towards extensions from GNOME Shell developers, which before was, we don't really like extensions. We'd like to build the necessary functionality in, and extensions are just kind of a temporary measure until we've got it to the point that everybody's happy. But that day has not arrived. And I think as time has gone on, they've realized the role that extensions play in the GNOME Shell ecosystem. Not just from like users like you and I, right? But vendors like Canonical or Red Hat or SUSE, who want to ship a experience to customers. They want these facilities available to them. Canonical has a curated GNOME experience. They have like an OEM vendor version that you can, that you can do. It's totally all built into GNOME, where you can apply your own set of extensions, and that becomes the base GNOME shell. And then Canonical updates those via the repo as well. They just don't have all the other ones in there. And so this is something that downstream, quote-unquote, customers of GNOME Shell clearly want. And I think the project has recognized users are still finding use cases for them. The downstream quote-unquote customers are finding uses for them. And now as a project, they're coming to the reality that they've got to support these in some way, but the cat's out of the bag. The, the technical challenge exists. There's no going back now. So this is their measure. Wouldn't the ultimate answer, answer and we should probably get off this because I'm sure GNOME folks feel like we're beating up on them. Yeah. Uh, the ultimate answer is like basic functionality, such as switching your background, should not need an extension, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I know that's like saying do your homework and eat your vegetables, but... I feel like what we have right now is a kind of interesting trifecta of you have a lot of the just hardcore, grueling GNOME shell development happening upstream with the Fedora and Red Hat developers. A lot of them are GNOME shell developers as well, and there's a lot of crossover there. Then you have Canonical, who is creating a very curated GNOME shell experience and adding value to like the settings panels and stuff like that, that upstream notices and thinks, hmm, maybe we should have that. And then on top of that, you have System76 laying down their improvements to Pop! OS, which is building on top of all of these layers, and they're adding really interesting things. And all of this is going into GNOME Shell in one form or another. And all of it's open source code that is available if GNOME Shell wants to integrate some of this directly or at least get inspired by the idea. So it, it will take a while to work its way out. But if you look at it in that, in that viewpoint, it seems like the desktop is really that, – that GNOME Shell desktop is really well positioned for some serious innovation down the road because you've got – Fedora and Canonical and System76 and others out there. I don't mean to, like, there's people at Endless, there's people at SUSE. I don't, I don't mean to count anybody out, but you have all of these high-profile deployments that are adding different ideas to the experience. It's going to result in, I think, rapid development. So more is to come. I hope so. Now, I wasn't sure if we were going to talk about this in the show, but you and I have both been running Microsoft Edge since they released it for Linux last week. Um, I've run it on a Fedora machine, I've run it on an Ubuntu machine, and I've got some thoughts, but I'm curious to know what your takeaway experiences are with Edge, where you think it's at. I think one of the areas that they launched right out of the gate with is pretty decent developer tools. I'm sure you had a chance to look at those. Curious what you think. Yeah, so I really spent a lot of time with the VS Code Edge developer tie-in tools, and damn, uh, that's that's compelling. So, okay, wait, wait, wait. VS Code tie-in. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, what? Basically, VS Code, if you have Edge installed, it can actually do a few things. But the, the one I think is particularly sexy is it can take, like, your HTML or whatever, you know, your web assets, right? We're talking web development here. Yeah. And render it in VS Code, and you can do, like, inspections on it and a bunch of debugging stuff. I've only scratched the surface because I literally downloaded it this weekend. Oh, I'm looking at it right now. This is... Amazing. Yeah, it's very, especially like niggling front end issues. This is this is pretty. This is something I would use like all the time. It's like the Chrome developer tool where you can click through the the elements of the site and it highlights it in the code explorer. But instead, now it's happening in VS Code. 
it's your actual code, right? It's not that you have to then go back and like, you know, control F and find it, whatever the div is called. Oh, and they do a live render so you can you can go through the site. Yep. This is brilliant. With this launching like this right now, I mean, this kind of just is the tell on what Microsoft strategy is here. It's developers. So go into that. What is this? Because this is obviously a ton of work, what they did here. Yeah, I mean, I look at this and I think there's clear ones we've talked about before is there's enterprise use cases. And I heard a lot of that from the audience. Um, But when I see this, what I see is Microsoft creating tools for developers who prefer to run Linux. They're creating a tool for them so that way they can test what they're building in Edge. And why not make it a great experience to debug and, and explore like... And they're leveraging VS Code in a way that's extremely clever. Well, it, it's it's so it's super weird right now because like I primarily work in Ruby, Python, and you know HTML, CSS because everybody has to, right? Like with we talked about it a month or two ago. Pylance, their uh, their new like super duper Python tooling for VS Code is awesome. Like I am a over a decades long JetBrains user, and I'm like VS Code is certainly on par with PyCharm and I think is actually becoming slightly better than RubyMine, which those are respectively the Python and Ruby IDs from JetBrains. It also doesn't make my laptop sound like a 747 when I boot it. So there's that. There's that. There's that is a nice aspect of it. I didn't even mention it, but like the other thing they're doing is they're introducing something that should have existed as a standard a while ago. Uh, Their take on a storage access API, but they're doing it by like actually going through the the uh, W3C standards committee and all that kind of stuff. Isn't that refreshing? Yeah, but it's an awesome, like I looked at the API documentation. Yeah. It is exactly what you need. It's an API that allows the uh, developer to determine whether they have access to browser-based storage. And if it's restricted by the user's privacy settings to request storage access from the user, like kind of a pop-up we're familiar with. And uh, they say this capability can be used to create a graceful fallback experience in cases when storage access may be restricted by features such as tracking prevention. It's, and they're creating an API there, which is great. And, and this is super important as, you know, more and more web-based clients just make more sense than like, you know, whatever. Um, and as more and more users, particularly sophisticated users, are running blockers and are unknowingly like getting crappy experiences on your PWA or whatever because the blocker just automatically like denies you a bunch of permissions that you need. What if what we're about to witness is Microsoft create a kick-ass browser that surpasses Chrome? Because when you think about Chrome, it's an operating system now. It's got remote desktop capabilities. It's got all of this incredible amount of technology that it's built on over the years. And my, my first impression when I launched Edge for the first time, after I went through their little wizard that said, we are protecting your privacy, which I'm kind of like, hmm. And then they asked for me to participate in metrics collection, which I which I actually decided to do. Um, but once you get past that, first experience is, oh, this reminds me of, of, of Chrome when it was new and fast and lean mm. with a couple of surprise features in there. Like, I think the way they lay out the settings is way better. I think collections is a really unique idea, especially for a guy like me who likes to document an article before it changes and suck the whole contents of a website offline. I miss that. I used to, funny enough, that was one of the things I used to play around with Internet Explorer way back in the day. But now they've brought it to Edge in collections. But then also one of the things that I think is is telling is this this nod towards developers, this clear, this clear like this is an area they put emphasis in because they haven't even brought user sync over yet. I think that's very telling. And I could see this going in a direction where Edge becomes a serious contender and surpasses Firefox. Yeah, it's going to be tough to be Firefox with Chrome in kind of the catbird seat and Microsoft making a really aggressive um, play for for second, effectively. So why, though? Right. Like, this is the thing I don't understand. Like, I'm running Linux and Mac every day, all day, right? Half and half. Actually, more more favoring Linux, but... The best tools I have are almost exclusively from Microsoft now. I mean, that's why they're doing this. You could run Edge on all three Windows, Mac, and Linux, all three major desktops. That's something right there. And it's a lot like uh, like I speculated on Linux Action News. I think what they're doing here is they're, they're saying to the enterprise and they're saying to the world, here's the grown-up version of open source. Here's the, you know, the business class version of open source software. Now that's a spicy take. Yeah. I mean, you think about where they were when we started this show and now where they're at now, where they are, they're making money off open source now. 
right? That's the position we're in now. Microsoft has figured out a way to make money by releasing things like VS Code as open source, by leveraging things like Blink. I mean, one of their core products is based around an open source project now. And they're going to use that to drive developer adoption of their platforms in a very clever way. And I'm not 100% sure if I'm okay with it. I'm just talking about from like an analyst strategic standpoint here. I'm not talking about it from, you know, save the web standpoint. But I, I could see them coming to uh, the market with Edge in a, in a really competitive way now. Now that I've seen what it's capable of, it feels fast. The font rendering is, I think, some of the best on desktop Linux. I don't know if you've noticed, but I think the fonts look terrific. Uh, so I set it as my default browser. Did you? Yeah. I, you know, it's funny is anytime I say like this kind of stuff about Microsoft, I get so much crap. People actually have written like articles on open source news websites attacking me for talking positive about Microsoft. (laughs) It's just ridiculous. I'm just saying, I'm looking at the strategy here and I see it and I think it makes a lot of sense. And while Google kind of has this, we want the world to use Chrome. I think Microsoft very cleverly is targeting this at a set of users and they're going after it. And you got to wonder if maybe, especially as as this uh, DOJ case against Google moves forward, if maybe public opinion isn't going to start shifting a bit about Google, kind of like it did during the Microsoft trials. And if it does, Microsoft is right here with Edge saying, hey, we got the business we got the business approved version of Chrome if you'd like to use it. That's true. That's true. And just but just imagine when we started this show a world where we are like not trolling and seriously talking about Microsoft being an active participant in a standards committee I know, and not in like a creepy, like we're going to embrace extend extinguish thing, but like actively, they seem like a good actor, right? They seem like a positive. I'll go a step further than that. They may be saving us from total Chrome domination. And I realize it's blink under the hood, but at least they are another player with leverage. It's another gorilla in that arena that can, that can assert its opinion and advocate for standards we were so, I mean, Firefox is done, man. It's, it is, Mozilla is cooked. You're lighting up that hot take, huh? It's documented on Linux Action News after just a year of, de- I, and it has gotten so bad that we've just sort of, we've sort of not decided to cover every Mozilla story because every week there's some new story about their decline. Firefox is, is ruined. And uh, it's such a shame because it's, it's such, it's such a good point. Like they got that meteor shooting again, back up into the sky but the support team on the ground just isn't there. Uh, and Chrome is just dominating the market now, just absolutely dominating the market. So Microsoft may, may save us from a total Google web monopoly. Honestly, like what, and I've mentioned this before, one of my fears is that Chrome was becoming IE6, right? I guess I'm not as doom and gloom on Firefox as you because I, I sort of think there's a lot of smart people there that can... There were. Well, they, yeah, a lot of, they did have an exodus. Yeah. So basically, I can't have extensions... And I can't have Firefox. Is that where we're going? Right. right. Although Chrome extensions work great in Edge, so... Yo, oh, by the <laughs> way, what a move. Oh, you know the whole ecosystem of extensions? We gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you got to figure a lot of the heavy lifting to getting Edge on Linux and macOS is being done by the uh, Chromium team. <laughs> right? Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. So Microsoft is leveraging... The hard work of their competitor here, uh, and it's open source, although Edge itself is not open source, and I think that would actually be a decent move on their part, but maybe not. We'll see. Eh, I, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like they, they're going to wait, like open source things after the fact. Maybe. Or if they were going to do it, they probably would have done it. Um, well, I want to say thank you to our Coder QA team. You go get your quarterly report. It is out, and we, you get one every quarter. You support the show. You also get a limited ad feed. And uh, we appreciate every single one of you to help not only cover the production of the show, but help us be picky and choosy about the sponsors we bring onto the show. That's a big part of it as well. And keeping the show sustainable. So you can become a member at coderqa.co and you get a limited ad feed. You support the show and you get that coder quarterly report. It's at coderqa.co. Now, before we get out of here, I wanted to mention that ISH has made it onto the App Store, and it's actually completely free. I've been using it for over, I I think I talked about it on the show, maybe even almost two years ago. It is a project to get a full Linux shell running on iOS using user mode x86 emulation and syscall translations. So ISH is an app for iOS. It works great on the iPad or the phone, 
that emulates a 32-bit Alpine x86 Linux environment. You can install software from Alpine APKs. ISH also acts as a file provider, so you can go to the Files app in iOS and you can edit the sidebar and you can turn on ISH to mount, quote-unquote, your ISH file system, and you can drag stuff into it from iOS and get access to those files in ISH, and you get a full Alpine x86 environment. It's brilliant on the iPad Pro, especially if you got the keyboard. You get a full-screen, legitimate x86 Linux environment. I thought there was no way in hell Apple would let this on the App Store. So go get it now, because... <laughs> They probably won't. Well, now, now that you told them it's on there, it won't yeah. be there for very long. When does the show come out? Wednesday? You better download it Tuesday. Yeah, you better get it soon. Yeah. But I don't know if you had a chance to try this, but it still blows my mind when I bring up a full Linux environment on my iPad. Yeah, no. So assuming Apple doesn't rip this down, um, this will be on my iPad when we resume traveling, if ever. Yep. Yeah. Uh, this and I think it's oh, I don't remember the name exactly, but I think it's Termulus, which is a terminal app and it can sync your SSH favorites between devices man do i use the crap out of that like if i gotta just do a quick ssh into a server to reboot or something like that i, I have it on both my devices and it's just lovely it's a little bonus pick there for you but ish is a full alpine linux environment and somehow for some reason it's on the app store the guy the developer that makes it uh he had it up for like 70 bucks for the first day and they even let that on they let it on at 70 dollars, <laughs> and now it's free <laughs> oh wait a minute wait a minute Apple would never begrudge anybody for charging a premium. I mean, that's that's like true. That's very true. That's probably why they let it on. Actually, They're like ah, someone who finally understands. Right. The value. Well, um, there you have it. We'll have a link to ISH in the uh, in the show notes, which will be at coder.show slash three eight five. Mr. Dominic, is there anything you like to plug this week or send the people somewhere? Something. Follow me on Twitter at Dumanuko. I will have some Sousa content out this week. I'm not trolling. Well, I am trolling, Chris, but I really will. So, All right. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, I think the show is at Coder Radio Show, at Coder Show. You'll, you'll know if somebody yells at you, you got the wrong one. Yeah, I got to just put a bookmark out there. Uh, I'm at Chris LAS. The network is at Jupiter Signal. And hey, we'd love to have you join us live. We do this show on Mondays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern over at JBLive.tv. You can hang out in the chat room. There's a bit of a pre-show, a bit of a post-show, all of that over at JBLive.tv and makes the show a little bit better and you help us title it too. We'd love to see you on a Monday. If not, show's out on Wednesdays. You can get it at coder.show slash subscribe. Thanks for joining us. See you back here next Monday.